what's the what's the line from uh over the garden wall that's the way it goes i don't i don't know I, that's not it <laughs> what is uh, it ain't this, frog, just the this way. frog's giving me the runaround <laughs> i think it's ain't that just the way ain't that just the way yeah so it is ain't that just the way you sure it wasn't this frog's giving me the runaround? Well, that's definitely a great line from that show, but I don't think that's <laughs> what I was thinking of at the time. It's going to be close to time to watch that again. I can't yeah. wait. Well, a friend of mine hadn't seen it. I thought he had, but he hasn't. So I, I was like, well, this is the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's totally the time. So, you got to watch it with him. Yeah. Well, I think he'll probably... I told him to watch it with his wife, so hopefully they will. Okay. I mean, I'll watch it with the two of them, I suppose, but I, I assume it's more of like a evening on the couch sort of vibe. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> anyway, uh, transition into the show, I guess. Absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. Awesome. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Reference Frames podcast, the 17th most popular Ooh. podcast in the physics subcategory on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. In the United States specifically. Welcome. Thanks for joining in. What we do here is we take a popular podcast scene maybe from a movie maybe from tv could even be sports we've been known to do in the past sometimes will will break down that scene he'll give us a nice narration to get us in the really creative zone get those creative juices flitter flowing uh and then after that flitter flowing that's a thing after that he will give us a little bit of lecture about a physics concept that is present in that scene to help us understand physics better because if we know physics better we know the world better We are pro-science, so before we move into the main body of our content, we always start with correcting anything we did wrong in the last episode. Um, And thanks to my coworker, who is an electrical engineer and listened to our electricity (laughs) podcast or our electricity episode last time, we have, for the first time on this show, actual listener corrections. Correction zone. Where do you want to start, Will? Well, I think the big one is that we failed to mention kind of the crux of our whole discussion, which is that whenever charge is being pushed around, right, uh, if there are multiple paths to a certain endpoint, they'll always take whichever one has the least resistance, so whichever one they can move through easier. We kind of used that assumption the whole time, but we forgot to make it explicit. So, for example, if Tim on that electric fence in Jurassic Park, if there was a piece of metal connecting the two uh, cables he was hanging on, it would have jumped through the piece of metal and not through him because he's a lot harder to flow through than a cable would be. So that's a big one. Sort of a a principle, a, a main principle of um, of current and electricity, and uh, we just missed it. Yep. Um, uh, that's the way she goes. The way it goes. So <laughs> apologies for that. Uh, number two, I mentioned that when lightning strikes a tree, uh, the tree explodes and that can hurt people. And while, true. yes, true. an exploding tree is a component of harming people, that isn't the main um, the main danger when standing near a tree that has a lightning strike hit it. Because after lightning hits that tree, all of that lightning energy has to go somewhere and it actually disperses through the ground, which creates a, uh, a potential, like we talked about, that current flows through the ground. And if you are standing... On that ground current, you could have yourself at two different potentials and might find yourself with a little bit of ground current flowing through your legs, which can be a danger uh, to you, especially this happens to cows and farm animals when they take shelter under trees during lightning storms. Mm -hmm. They can get zapped instead of exploded. Exactly, yeah. So if you imagine all those charges, right, they're zooming along the surface of the ground. If you're there, 
they're probably a little more conductive than the ground in in a in an unfortunate situation. They'll go through you rather than just along the ground, which is not a great place to be. Yeah, and then the third one. Um, so when we're talking about the lightning strikes, we didn't make explicit that uh, the reason lightning is able to travel through the air is that it first creates the uh, changes the air into a plasma by ionizing the air. Um, I did mention that electrons are being stripped off of the air molecules, but I didn't explicitly call it a plasma. And since that's the name of it, um, slight correction there as well. There we have it. Three corrections. Bam. Knock them out. Courtesy of my coworker, T-Dog. Thanks, T-Dog. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. One being one of our Google podcast listeners, one of the three subscribers. There we go. And that's it. That's all in the correction zone this week. So now I think, Will, if you are ready... Sure. In a factory, high in the mountains of Switzerland, MI6 agent James Bond has been captured by the dastardly businessman Alric Goldfinger. He awakens in a dark room, strapped tightly to a slab of pure gold. The lights turn on, illuminating a wood-paneled lodge with various laboratory equipment scattered about and a massive apparatus suspended above Bond's golden tabletop. Goldfinger appears and briefly gloats about his capture, before transitioning to discuss the strange cylindrical apparatus suspended from the ceiling, which he deems considerably more practical than Bond's now-destroyed spy car. He describes it as an industrial laser, which emits an extraordinary light not to be found in nature. It can project a spot on the moon, or at closer range, cut through solid metal. Thank you for the impression. Uh, he demonstrates this by maneuvering the laser emitter to the foot of Bond's slab and begins cutting through the metal between his feet. Sparks fly as the laser begins a slow ascent up the table's surface, leaving behind a blackened slice clean through the slab of gold. Goldfinger continues to stroke his considerable ego and gloat as the red beam crawls closer and closer to Bond's body. As Goldfinger turns and makes his way to leave, 007 speaks up. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. And there we go. There we go. Great movie. I was going to do the quote, but you did it instead. Do you want want to do it? Yes. Will you be, should I be James Bond or should I be Goldfinger? I'll be James Bond. Okay, I'm going to go over here so it sounds like I'm further away. Do I sound further away? Perfect. All right. As Goldfinger turns and makes his way to leave, 007 speaks up. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. I've never seen the movie. Uh, it is apparent. <laughs> <laughs> Great movie, uh, Goldfinger. It's, I think, the th- third or fourth Bond film. I'm going to guess what we're doing. What are we doing? We're talking about it's lasers. It is lasers. Well done. You got it in one. I'm so proud of Thank you. Thank you. Woo. Yes, lasers. The uh, Easy. Yeah, the invention of the modern age. Um, so first, before we kind of get into what how lasers work and how they're made and all that fun stuff, it's first good to point out that laser is itself an acronym. It's used as a word nowadays, but it originally started as an acronym. Um, and it stands for light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. And as we talk about how it works and what it is, hopefully that name will make sense and we'll kind of revisit that at the very end. So um, I always forget what yeah. the acronym stands for. I That's remember light amplification and then I always forget the rest. Sir, exactly. So the first laser uh, in the real world 
was uh, created in 1960. There was a maser created, which is like a different, uh, it's a different frequency of light, um, not visible, made earlier in the 50s. But the first laser was made in 1960. Um, worth pointing out, Goldfinger was originally a book written in 1959. And the movie no came out in 1964. So only four years after the laser was invented. Whoa. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So it was like modern, modern tech in the movie. Worth pointing out, in the book, they didn't have a laser because it didn't exist yet. Um, they had a giant, apparently they had a huge, giant circular saw. Love it. Um, which they decided cartoonish. was a bit too campy. So they were like, let's, let's, do, a, let's do this fancy new technology like a instead. Mickey Mouse thing. It's a little goofy. Um, so yeah, and that's also why Goldfinger, I gave that little speech there. He explains like this industrial laser with all these, <laughs> you know, he, the, he needs to explain to the audience what a laser is because they don't know right. what it is because it's People new. didn't know yet. Exactly. Pretty that's cool. really neat. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, w- I do think it's funny that he says you can shine it, you can put a dot on the moon. Like, like that's that's a pretty common thing now, right? Yep, like, there's a little mirror on the moon for physics students to yep. measure the reflection time. That's cool. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I digress. Oh, cool. And we, you know, 1964, we hadn't been to the moon yet, so oh, so at the time there wasn't a mirror there. Exactly. Good correction. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so what is a laser? Why is it useful? You know, all this fun stuff. So the basics of a laser is that it's light, like a light bulb creates. Um, but the difference is that it's both coherent, which means all the light waves are in phase with each other. Uh, and also it's fairly, but generally very monochromatic, which means it's all one color. You see like, you know, a red laser or a green laser, all that fun stuff. These two um, aspects of it are very useful because that means that it doesn't spread out very much. So it can travel a long distance without being super diffuse. And therefore you can concentrate a lot of energy on a very small area because it's so narrow. Are you going to talk at some point about um, what being in phase means? Uh, a little bit, yes. Okay. Yes. We'll talk then about we, this. Then I will wait to ask my question until we get there. Please do. All right. So lasers, the, the only reason they're able to be possible is because of the SE in the acronym, which is the bit that Ian forgot, uh, stands for stimulated emission. And that is a, a property um, that was actually theorized by Einstein. We'll talk a little bit about that. And that is the entire reason this stuff works. So what is spontaneous stimulated emission? First, let's talk about some things you're probably more familiar with, which are absorption and spontaneous emission of light. So um, around atoms and molecules and things like that, electrons are contained within certain allowed orbitals or orbital arrangements. Um, This is a quantum mechanical phenomenon, but basically there are only certain allowed arrangements that they can exist in. Um, There's a number of factors that distinguish these different orbitals. One of them is the energy of the electron occupying it. So you may be familiar from, if you ever took a chemistry course of like, the 1s2 or the 4p3, I'm not a chemist, but you know, all those different (laughs) things. The number there is the energy of that orbital. So these electrons exist in all these different orbitals. If light of a particular energy hits an electron, as light often is interacting with matter, right? That light can be absorbed by the electron, by the atom. And the energy it once had is then used to excite an electron into a higher energy level. So it basically jumps up a ladder. If you imagine like rungs on a ladder, it'll hop up to a higher energy level. And the energy that it jumps has to be equal to the light that it absorbed, the energy of the light that it absorbed. So that absorption process is pretty dang common. Uh, it happens all the time. Anytime light's interacting with stuff, um, it'll be absorbed and it moves energy up, lights or electrons up in energy levels, all that fun stuff. Not super crazy. Um, and that's referred to as absorption. And the very common result that happens Im- almost immediately after, like fractions upon fractions upon fractions of seconds after that is the electron will de-excite or relax back down to the energy it already was before that. So it'll drop down and in doing so, all that energy that it once had 
is emitted as light again, right? So that energy it gained from light is immediately given back as light is lost. And this is called spontaneous emission um, because it just seems to happen naturally. Given enough time, it'll just drop back down, light will get emitted, no big whoop. That's spontaneous emission, which is different than the one we care about, which is um, stimulated emission, right? So these two processes often go together, light gets absorbed, light gets emitted, no big deal. However, there's this other thing that can happen called stimulated emission, which is inherent to how a laser works and necessary. So this is the trick. If an electron is already excited when a photon comes by, photon being a, a unit of light comes by, that has the same amount of energy it would have needed to excite it in the first place. So let's say it needs five units of energy to excite it up to the state it's, it's in currently. If, it comes, if another photon comes by with five units of energy, it can actually trigger that electron rather than exciting it up to that level, it'll actually trigger it to drop down to that level, to the, to the, to the lower level which is kind of weird. And so this um, light that caused that um, stimulates that electron to drop down, therefore stimulates a photon to be emitted, right? Because anytime an electron drops down, it emits a photon. And because it's the same energy as the, as the photon that triggered it, you now have two photons of that same energy. And so this is what stimulated emission means. Basically, light comes through to, to a electron that's already been um, excited. And if, as long as the electron's been up there long enough, it'll trigger it to jump back down and release a photon. Does that, does that make sense so far, Ian? Uh, yeah, I think so. So basically what you're saying is you have um, one case where you put energy in, mm -hmm. bring an electron up an energy level. Right. And it hangs out there and then eventually is like, okay, I'm done up here. I'm going back down. Mm -hmm. It goes back down. And anytime it drops an energy level, it's got to it's gotta lose some energy. Right. That spits out a photon, which is light. Mm -hmm. But there's another way to do it where you give it a little coaxing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like if I see a lot of people walking into a donut store, mm. I'll probably also walk into the donut store. Yeah. So basically, you can either do it spontaneously or it can be simulated to do it, kind of pushed to do it by this photon coming in. Like peer pressure. Exactly. It's photon peer pressure. Photon peer pressure. That's a good way of thinking about it. And actually, that kind of fits pretty well because the photon that's emitted now, that's been stimulated to be emitted, that light that's emitted, that photon, has the exact same energy or color, right, because it's light, as that photon that's stimulated. So it kind of emulates it, right? It's the same appearance and is perfectly in phase with it. We'll talk about that, what that means in a little bit. And it heads off in the exact same direction as the photon that's emitted. So basically, it's ultimate peer pressure. It follows along with it with the simulating photon basically every way it possibly can. And so let's talk a little bit about phase, you know. The elephant in the room. Basically, light is a wave, right? We talk about wavelength of light, right? That determines the color of it. And so basically, it's, it's a big up and down oscillation in the strength of the light. I don't want to get too into, like, the electromagnetism of it. But basically, it's, it's a wave that oscillates up and down. And you can have two waves, right, that are on top of each other. And if they're perfectly in phase with each other, that means all their peaks line up and all their valleys line up. And if you have two waves that do that, that are perfectly in phase, the peaks add together and the, and the troughs add together downwards, and I'm getting a bigger wave as, a, as, a, as an effect of both waves on top of each other. If they're perfectly out of phase, which is where the peaks line up with the troughs of the other one, then the peaks add onto the troughs and the troughs add onto the peaks, and you actually get no 
effective wave there. So phase is really important with light because if you have all these things in phase, you get very strong light because it's basically multiplying the light. But if they're perfectly out of phase, it actually almost cancels out the light. You, almost, you won't see any light if it's all out of phase. So that's a pretty crucial. So, so this is the basic idea of this spontaneous versus stimulated emission. And the fact that the stimulated emission is exactly like the light that caused it to be emitted in the first place is exactly why lasers work the way they do. And so how do we get this to happen is kind of the question, right? Because we want light that has all these properties, the same color, the same direction, the same phase. It's all really useful because it makes lasers work the way lasers work. But how do we do that in the first place, right? It, like we just said, spontaneous emission happens all the time. We don't usually talk about stimulated emission because it's rare. It doesn't really happen in the natural world, right? This is where Einstein comes in. Einstein theorized back in 1917. He didn't get a Nobel Prize for this, by the way, which is insane. He should have gotten like six Nobel Prizes, but whatever. His big contribution was that he said two probabilities are the exact same. So there's a probability. You have a photon going through, right, going near this atom. The probability of it exciting an electron up to an excited state is actually the exact same as the probability for that same photon going by an identical atom, but it just has one already excited, the probability of making it drop down, which is odd because you don't see the latter happening very often. But the reason we don't see it happening very often is because there aren't that many excited states around in general, right? We just said they drop down spontaneously all the time, right? So there aren't, it's hard to get a bunch of atoms with a bunch of electrons all excited at the same time because they naturally drop down all the time, this spontaneous emission, right? So if we can get it where we have more excited electrons than there are non-excited electrons in a given medium, all of a sudden, any light that goes through that could either make something excite or make something emit all of a sudden is making more of them emit because there's more of them to emit than there are things that could be absorbed and excited. So if you, the minute you get more atoms with, with excited electrons than you have non-excited, all of a sudden more of the light that comes in will cause more light to be generated than will be absorbed. So this is what's called the population inversion and it's basically a runaway effect, like a chain reaction. When you get past that, you're getting more light being created and therefore more light's being stimulated and more light starts being created in general. It's a little hard to kind of conceptualize. Um, it's like a hype train. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, a, it's, like, it's like a Dunkin' Donuts hype train. But yeah, so all of these factors we've talked about kind of start giving us clues as to how we actually could make a laser in the first place, right? 1960, mm -hmm. how do they do this, right? So first step, you need to get a population inversion, which means you need to get a lot of atoms with a lot of excited states, a lot harder than you'd think. There's a reason we couldn't do it until 1960, even though it was theorized in 1917. It requires a lot of steps and a lot of understanding of different energy states. And in fact, I'm not going to get into it. It's a little too complicated, but there's these called metastable states that are required in a lot of cases. It makes it a lot easier to get things so they don't collapse immediately back down to the lower state. But first, you need to have the population inversion in the first place. So you're going to get this kind of runaway effect going. Second step, you need, to, you need to have this happen in a material where the electron energy gap, you're trying to make them jump up and down, has the same energy whatever light we want our color to be. Or sorry, whatever color we want our light to be, right? If you want red light, the energy of red light needs to be the energy of that gap, which is also not trivial to do. You have to find the right material for it. And then the, the third step, which is kind of the really important one, right? If you do this, that's great. All the light goes in one direction, though, and it kind of just leaves the material behind. So what you need to do is basically put it inside of a capsule with mirrors on both ends so it bounces back and forth. Because then as it keeps bouncing back and forth, you get more and more light bouncing back and forth, more and more light bouncing back and forth, stimulating more and more of these atoms in this material, right? So you're basically bouncing back and forth, Stimulating as many of these atoms as possible to get more and more light generated. Seen this picture here, Ian? 
Yeah, you're keeping you're keeping all the people who are excited about Dunkin' Donuts in the same room, getting yeah. each other and like hype train, getting every last person excited exactly. about it. Exactly. And then in this Dunkin' Donuts, right, the trick is you have one of the mirrors, one of the sides of the mirrors, so maybe the side door of the building, you crack it a little bit. You have a little bit of light going out. So in this case, you let a little few people out, and all of a sudden, all this light that's bouncing around, some of it starts leaking out, and it starts leaking out in whatever direction you want the laser to go. And then you get all this light that is a single color because it's all the same energy because it's all the same electron drops all going in the same direction and all in phase, which is exactly what a light, what a laser is. So let's talk about the acronym, right? Light yeah. amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. So what are we doing? We're amplifying light. We're bouncing it back and forth, getting this chain reaction going, amplifying a single photon into billions of photons. And we're doing it by using this process called stimulated emission, which is where we get them to create their own photons, right? We cause them to cause more things to emit more photons. Yeah. And then the radiation is just, you know, the light radiation. You're amplifying light, L-A, by stimulated emission, S-E, of the light radiation. So that's a laser. That's how a laser works. And has how, that's how it has worked since 1960, uh, as theorized and, you know, by people before then. And Einstein kind of set the groundwork for it with this whole population inversion idea. Let me run it back. Let me make mm-hmm. sure I've got it under under control here. Yeah. I take just a mirror chamber. Inside that chamber, I want to get as many atoms with the electrons, an energy level up, mm-hmm. such that when they drop from this energy level down to their most relaxed state, mm-hmm. they kick off a photon, which again is light, at the energy that would create the color of light that we want. Yep. Oftentimes red. Sure. Or if you're an astronomer, green. Yep. And once I start getting those, I've gotten my sort of population inversion, what we call that. Mm-hmm. We have a lot that are ready to go. We throw a photon in there, and basically that that encourages all of those other electrons to drop down and launch out another photon. Yeah. And then that photon is going to start doing the same thing all inside this chamber until I have just this cacophony of photons of red light bouncing around. Back and forth in this, and, and that's forth. kind of trick. Always in like bouncing back and forth between the two mirrors, right? So it's always going to be bouncing left and right or whatever. Yeah. Yep. And then I open a slit at the end, and sometimes some of that light is going to be going out that slit. Yeah. Right. And technically, technically, it's not like opening a slit. Literally, you have a one of the mirrors that just lets some of the light through all the time. Maybe it's like a fifty-fifty mirror where half the light will bounce back, half the light will transmit. But yeah, yes. that's the basic idea. Right. Okay. I think we've got it under control. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's look back at the scene then. Poor James Bond, poor Sean Connery, strapped to this gold table, right? So when Goldfinger turns on the laser, that's what's going on inside of that big, scary looking, you know, science fiction machine. There's some material in there, probably a crystal or whatever. Has all this stuff bouncing around in there, spontaneously emitting light, bouncing back and forth. And a little bit of it's let a leak out. And threaten our dashing protagonist, right? It zooms out, smashes into the gold, melts the gold, bursts right through it. Yeah. And I'll point out, actually, uh, I found a source. We'll put the link uh, underneath. Um, but he was basically talking about, like, what kind of laser. He's like a laser jock scientist. And he's talking about, what, is that feasible? Like, could a laser actually do that? And he does kind of some back-of-the-envelope calculations. And he says that, you know, a, you need at least a three-megawatt laser in order to melt straight through the golden table in the scene. Um, which, according to him, isn't that unreasonable. I mean, it's not powerful enough for, like, a basic laser, but you could make a laser, and especially if you're as rich 
as Goldfinger is, which is, you know, very filthy. Pretty rich, yeah. Um, it's potentially reasonable. All right, Ian, so where yes. do we see lasers? That's a laser light show right there. Okay, nice. Many concerts love their laser lights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any others? Uh, you ever been to a place called Grand Slam or Bolero? No. What, what is this? Oh, it's a place that has laser tag. Isn't that like a Denny's meal? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, Grand Slam is. Uh, laser tag, of course. Mm, sure. You fire lasers at each other and they're sensed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's actually, you can encode audio. You're missing one that I, I really thought you would know. Is it going to be fiber optic cables? That isn't, but that's another great example. Talk me about that. Uh, everyone's heard of Google Fiber. Everyone knows about it. It's the fastest, bestest internet in town. Basically what you do, in very general terms, we've got glass cables, which I know doesn't sound the most ideal, does it? But if you make them small enough, they can bend. And you essentially encode whatever information you have, right? Because a lot of our digital information, well, all of our digital information can be broken down into ones and zeros, displayed very, very quickly. Uh, you can fire a laser down that cable and it will stay within a tube, a glass tube, as long as it doesn't bend too much. Um, of course, that's sort of a, that's a physics concept for another time, methinks. Exactly. Total exactly. internal reflection and whatnot. And we use lasers for that because it can keep going in the same direction for a very long distance, right? More than most lights. It doesn't decohere very quickly, in other words. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was hop, I thought you would really hop on to LASIK eye surgery. Oh, I missed it. it. It was so obvious, but I missed it. You did. I was surprised. <laughs> but yeah, that's another example, right? So they use lasers because they're so precise that they can hit such a small area, right? So you can localize um, the effect of it, right? You're basically burning stuff. You're able to cauterize their, you know, damage things. But you can damage only what you want to damage, right? Which is kind of the point of... LASIK, right? You're, you you don't want to damage the whole retina. You just want to affect something and change the eye shape and all that fun stuff. Think about it this way. My eyeball was the gold table. Mm. But they were like carving a nice statue out of that table. And they were like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to see. And then I opened my eyes and I was like, I can't see. And they're like, well, you, there's a recovery period. Give us a time. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Any others? I got a few. Why don't you go ahead? Because I I love me some lasers, and I could probably come up with stuff sure. over and over again because it's so fun. So a classic one everyone's used all the time is barcode scanners, right? Anytime you're scanning right. a barcode, that is a, a, yeah. a, a laser that a lasers you're using to scan it, right? Um, and then also, uh, I mean, similar to the, the scene we're talking about, there's often laser cutting for manufacturing things, kind of cutting things out of metal sheets. You can use lasers for that. Um, but Ian, you mentioned earlier, um, uh, like planetariums or like light shows or nighttime, uh, things using green lasers rather than red lasers. Do you know why? Sure did. Um, my talented (laughs) interior or a, a graphic design skills want me to say because green is a higher contrast compared to, um, the you know the night sky than red is but i'm sure there's a more mm. scientific reasoning here and i'm guessing you're you're just rip roaring to tell me what it is aren't you buddy uh yeah so it, it actually it it might be the end result might be the contrast i'm actually 100 sure but from what i understand um the reason for it is that 
it's, uh, it's, uh, it takes less power. Um, and the reason for that is because our eyes are more sensitive to green light than it is to red light, like our actual cone sensors in our eyes and our, in our retinas. Uh, and so therefore, the same intensity of light that you're creating with a red laser versus a green laser, you'll actually see it easier with a green laser. So you can actually, you, can, you don't have to use as powerful of a laser to make it be visible. Um, Interesting. To the human eye. And that might also be why the contrast is higher for green than red. I'm not actually sure about that. Could be a, a, yeah, a result of the sensitivity. Yeah. So lasers, any quick, 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 quick questions from the audience? We do. We do. (laughs) Like I mentioned last week, we actually have a little bit of a backlog, which is really nice. Um, But the question this week is we're going to do one because it's a little heady. I hope you're ready for it. Uh, our friend, sa- sacred, scared and confused, sacred says, and confused. <clears throat> hey, boys, referring to us, just finished listening to your electricity podcast and my high school physics memory is failing me. If similarly charged objects want to repel each other, what is the force that keeps all of the protons at the center of an atom from wanting to expand apart? Sincerely grateful. Scared and confused. That's a great question. And I hope you'll be less confused after we try to give you an answer. A satisfying one. So, um, yeah, that's a great question. You're right. So we talked about last week, you know, like charges like to repel, right? And it's, you know, electrons get pushed by other electrons. And you're right. Protons are repelled by other protons. So what's keeping them all together, right? Great question. Um, So there's a force uh, known as the uh, nuclear force, sometimes called the strong nuclear force. Um, it's called that because it's very, very, very strong, stronger than the three other fundamental forces or, you know, two other, depending on how you look at it. Um, however, it's only strong over very short ranges, which is really, really interesting. There's a larger reason for that, and I'd love to um, say more. So if you're curious, you can feel free to ask another answer. But the short end of it, short answer of it is um, this strong nuclear force um, it only goes out about one and a half femtometers from the source of it. Um, and for context, a femtometer is one uh, times 10 to the negative 15 meters. And uh, for reference, protons and neutrons, the elements that make up a, a nucleus of, a, of an atom, they each have a radius of roughly 0.8 femtometers. So we're about double that distance away. And the strong force loses basically all strength. Um, so this force is super strong within that range. In fact, it's 137 times stronger than electromagnetism is at one femtometer away. So it's quite a lot stronger than that repulsive force is as long as you're within that region. And in fact, this is actually kind of interesting. This is why part of the reason, not the whole reason, um, but it's part of the reason why heavier atoms, so atoms that have more and more protons in them, higher, uh, further along on the, L- the periodic table, why those are unstable slash radioactive. Because if you get too big of a nucleus, then what you have is these protons are getting further and further and further away from each other, where they're feeling less and less. They're getting out of the strong zone for the strong force. And then all of a sudden, the repulsive force is getting stronger than the, than the attractive force from the strong nuclear force. So hope that answers your question. There is another force there. It's called the nuclear force, and it's what keeps them all bound together. And maybe less scared, but you might you might still be. Folks, we're rapidly running out of time for this episode. So I'm going to move us quickly into the 
Plug Zone. Plug Zone. Thank you all to everyone out there who helped get us ranked number 17 <laughs> in the United States in the physics subcategory in the Apple Podcasts podcast service. Watch out, number 16. We're coming for you. Coming for you next. Hey, CERN, you better you better start <laughs> advertising because we're coming up there for you. Um, it's only thanks to people like you who share this podcast with other folks um, because, you know, even though Facebook gave me a $10 credit to advertise our podcast, I actually didn't use it because I got distracted by something else. So please, 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 Wait, word of mouth. free $10? Yeah, and I didn't use it. Sorry. Nice. Nice. There it goes. Uh, Share us with your friends, share us with people who like podcasts, your physics teacher, your physics students, any of the above. Uh, you can tweet at us at Podcast Frames. You can also email us, referenceframespodcast at gmail.com. That's the name of our podcast, at gmail.com. Send us your corrections. Send us your questions. Send us your fan art. Send us your comments. If you make a song about us or a poem, please send us anything you've got. Love to hear from you. Love to engage. Um, and that's the end of the plug zone. We made it. Nope. We made it. Parting words? Um, you know, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Thanks for listening. <laughs>